0: Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name's Jan Owen and I'm your uh, moderator for this session and we've got um, a fantastic topic, I think. We've, it's all been good manners so far this morning, but I think that's pretty likely to... Um Change and the fight of the century is over, but it could happen here on the stage this afternoon. Um, I've got some great people here to talk about the ever-pressing and important intergenerational debate issue. Where are we? Where are we going? What's it going to take? We've only got an hour to solve all of those problems. Um, (laughs) It should be heaps, really. So we've got, of course, a hashtag. If you haven't been using it, this is the one to use. Um, And we've got, at the end of the initial conversation, there are two spots, one and two, big numbers, where you can come and get to a microphone and ask a question. But to set the debate, I'm going to ask these three um, fantastic people on the stage here to each um, talk a little bit about this issue from a number of different angles. And first of all, um, I'll introduce them to you, Dr. Andrew Charlton, um, author, Rhodes Scholar from Oxford. He's managed to do all that by the time he was about 15. He's now... (laughs) Seventeen. <laughs> he's amazing. Um, Holly Ransom, who led the Y20 group of the G20 last year and is now um, by everybody's, um, I guess, measure one of the most well-known young Australians in the world. And Everard Compton, who is, again, one of the most well-known seniors in Australia. He hasn't always been senior. He told me before that he's very, very popular with women over 90. Um, which is fantastic and Everald has a long history in this country of leading seniors movements and has been part of the blueprint for an ageing Australia and is leading the longevity forum. So three really wonderful people to um, discuss and talk about this topic today with us here. So I'd like to hand over to Andrew first who's going to just give us Um, some headlines of a very, very dense and long report that was um, released earlier this year, the intergenerational report, and take us through some of the key areas and topics. Thanks, Andrew.
1: Thanks, Jan. I have the difficult challenge of uh, describing the intergenerational report in five minutes to you uh, (laughs) and keeping what is a very uh, long and boring subject, punchy. Uh, Unlike the ads, I don't have the colourful pants or the quirky glasses. Uh, but the advantage I do have over Dr. Carl is I read the report, so. <laughs> uh. Any any discussion of uh, intergenerational equity starts with how good the current generation has had it, and it is an amazing story that is one of the most remarkable things in modern economics. Over the last 15 years, and this number here is the economic growth of these nations over the last 15 years, Japan grew by 11%. Its economy expanded by 11%. Europe's economy expanded by 16%. Britain's economy expanded by 24%, the USA grew by 25%, and Australia grew by 75% over that 15-year period. Our growth was three times faster than Britain and the USA. It was seven times faster than Japan. We had 24 years of uninterrupted economic growth, and, and that 24 years is not just the longest period of uninterrupted growth in Australian history, It's one of the longest periods of uninterrupted growth in world history anywhere in modern times. And this made us one of the richest people on the planet. And the question is, how did we do that? How did we achieve such extraordinary growth in this generation? Well, that 75% gets broken down into a couple of components. First of all, we had more people in work, that's population growth and more people coming into the workforce, that was 27% of that 75%. We had more productivity, more output per person in in the workforce and that accounted for another 30%. And then we had this extraordinary boom in our terms of trade, the prices of our resources on world markets and that added 18% to our national income, adding up to 75%. An incredible period of growth in Australia's history. So what does the next generation have to look forward to? And these are the numbers out of the IGR. If this is what we've just had, what are we about to get? And the answer is pretty sobering. Our population growth is slowing and the proportion of older workers uh, is is increasing, so the overall participation in the labour force is falling. So we can expect 18% growth from more people in the workforce versus 27% in the past. Our productivity is coming down. After a strong period of productivity, the IGR forecasts that to moderate over the, over the next few decades and productivity will add 25% rather than the 30 it did over the last 15 years. And here's the kicker. Whereas over the last 15 years we had huge increases in our, in our export prices, over the next 15 years our export prices are forecast to fall. So Australia's growth rate falls by half. We grew 75% over the last 15 years, and now we're going to grow by just 40% over the next 15 years. And so, what do we do about this? Well, the focus of the intergenerational report talks a lot about debt. Debt is a big theme of the government and the political narrative. And the intergenerational forecast outlines two scenarios what the government calls uh, its uh, uh, proposed. Uh, way forward, which is what they would like to happen, which delivers zero debt in 2030, and what they call their previous policy, which is what they say they're saving us from, uh, which delivered 30 per cent debt in 2030. And if you think about that in terms of the per person impact on our income, that's the interest that's payable on that debt divided by the population, that's $686 per person, which is a lot of money but it's a small amount of money relative to the other side of the equation. And that is, what is the impact on our incomes from growing more slowly? And the difference of our per person income of growing at the rate that we grew over the last 15 years versus the rate we're going to grow over the next 15 years is $8,850. That's more than 10 times the impact of that different debt scenario. So when, it, when we think about our national conversation, and we are we asked to put forward one idea, the idea I, I put forward is, should we be focusing more on the income side? What do we do to lift that growth rate up to the way it was before, rather than focusing just on the debt side? And I think about it like a house. If we're, a, if we're leaving an asset to our next generation, to our kids, and we want to we leave them something that's as valuable as we can make it. And one way to increase the value of that house is to pay down the debt. And the choice that Australia has is to pay down that debt, to get, t- to get that down and uh, save that future generation $686 uh, each year in interest payments. But the other side of the equation, the other important thing about leaving an asset to the next generation is what's the quality of that asset? What's the income they're going to derive from that asset? And in Australia's case... If we invest in a better economy, if we focus on lifting our economic growth, if we improve productivity back to the levels that we had in decades past, if we work harder to improve uh, our participation in in the workforce, that's delivering an income benefit ten times the debt benefit. So for me intergenerational equity is certainly it's about debt, but it's probably not 90% about debt in the way that debt seems to dominate 90% of the conversation. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Andrew, very much and for setting the scene and bringing um, to life and to clarity some of the areas of the intergenerational report. Um, Let's move on to Holly and um, Holly, I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts about where we're at with young people in Australia and what the future looks like for them. Thank you for that
2: and thank you for the opportunity to be involved in the conversation today. And I guess my real passion as part of this conversation is trying to inject in a voice that despite the title intergenerational, uh, which would imply the idea that multiple generations are in conversation, is actually often a, a conversation that's confined to one generation. And so I really want to try and insert the perspective that I've been fortunate enough to have gathered from thousands of Australians that we've worked with as part of the, G20 youth dialogue last year and the ongoing conversation around these sorts of issues. And I think it's interesting from a starting point to reflect on who it is that's part of this longer term conversation because for the last two decades really our future discussion from a public policy point of view has largely been shaped around the issue of our population ageing. And Andrew's alluded to the fact that that's meant we've had a debt dominated debate. And what I think is quite interesting about that is There's another perspective to take on that and that's very much the prosperity debate. So moving away from the problem focus and that, and it is important that we have the conversation around the fact that, you know, the number of working people that are going to have to support our ageing population is going to halve over the next 30 years. That is significant but we also need to be thinking about how do we make sure that the generation that are going to come through and are going to be our tax base and are going to underpin the health of the economy in that regard, how do we make sure that they are prosperous and able to contribute? So there's some interesting, I guess, data points that we can look at to talk about, well, where are we right now? What do we know about what's happening to young Australians at present? The first thing is we know there's a huge youth unemployment issue. And this isn't unique to Australia, but it is very much happening in our backyard. So the figure is as high as 30% youth underemployment um, and is in the 20% range uh, depending on which data source you look at for youth unemployment. Now, that's a scary statistic in and of itself. And the conversations that you have with young people around the country are not just about the challenges of getting a job, but the length of time they're spending in the unemployment queue, up to 25% of our young unemployed people are long-term unemployed. And that's really extra terrifying, I guess, because of what we know about the long-term impacts of being unemployed long-term under the age of 25. So the OECD reports will tell us that if you fast-forward 10 years and you compare a young person who's never been long-term unemployed to one that has, you'll see a 23% gap in earnings for young men and a 16% gap in earnings for young women. And so there's this concern around if we don't address this now, we're actually starting to entrench disadvantage into the way that our economy and country is going to develop and that's pretty concerning. I think one of the other interesting concerns is the steady decline of our young people who are graduating into jobs and are also completing things like our TAFE and technical qualifications. So we've only got a 50% completion rate of TAFE qualifications in Australia. I actually didn't know that till I went overseas as part of an apprenticeship and skilling dialogue with the G20 last year and the rest of the world were looking at us and going, what's going wrong? You're a developed country, why aren't your completion rates higher? Uh, But the other thing is a majority of the increase that we had last year in youth unemployment has come specifically from unemployed university graduates. So our base is very much, there's still a clear correlation between succeeding in high school and getting through secondary education and getting into employment, but the growth that we saw, the absolute lion's share of that was unemployed university graduates. So this is real skills match that we've got to think about how we address. We've been flat-footed and we need to think about how we better support um, young people into uh, the skilling and training that we need for them to be able to thrive and succeed in the economy moving forward. And the final thing I'll call out that Andrew has mentioned, it shouldn't be 90% of the debate, but the debt challenge is there and is real. You know, the scale of uh, educational debt is much larger than previous generations have experienced. And we're also seeing statistics around young people having to take on more than three times the volume of debt to be able to purchase their first home. So there is this conversation that needs to happen around, well, what do we do about that? How do we accommodate uh, young people into the choice and opportunities that previous generations have been able to enjoy? Now, I'll just say quickly on this, I think there are three structural things we need to talk about when we have this conversation. The first is the obvious disconnects, the gaps between our educational sector and our, our employment sector, corporations. We're actually 33 out of 33 in the OECD for the relationship between our higher education institutions and business. And that speaks to why we're seeing the magnification of the skills mismatch that we're seeing. The second bit is this misalignment of incentives, this challenge that we've got around how do we actually get an intergenerational conversation to stick when everything's structured on electoral cycles and what can get you in at the next election or these these short-term goals. The other thing being that as our population base ages, if you can, if you're going to be cynical about where the political focus may go, and this is called out a little bit in Grattan's report, Wealth of Generations, last year, you'll watch, a continual pandering to the vote base and there's concern around how do we make sure that that prosperity conversation is still happening in light of that. I think the third thing is how do we make sure that we have true diversity at the table when we're talking about our national public policy agenda. There's an absence of that youth voice and we need to think about how we meaningfully engage it at the conversation table. Thank you.
0: Great. Right. Thank you, Holly. Um, and now to the other end of the spectrum, um, not you, Everald, of course, <laughs> you and Holly, but actually to talk about um, what's happening in a population actually and everyone's called it out, Andrew and Holly, and I think it's um, very well known that clearly we, as many OECDs are an ageing population, Australia not as fast as some others. In fact, by 2050, we'll have 50% more younger people in Australia than we have now, which is very, very unusual in an OECD country. But even so, as Holly says, the policy debate is all about ageing and the ageing population and how we're going to have to put our taxpayer funds into healthcare and so on to ensure that you all live long, prosperous and glorious lives. Um, So talk to us about this issue and how these trade-offs happen or are going to happen, Everald.
3: Well, let me talk about how we turn ageing into an asset rather than it being a a problem uh, for Australia. A generation from now, we're going to have a situation where there will be 50,000 Australians who are 100 and if you're in that category, the Queen's not going to send you a telegram because she's got too many. <laughs> there will be 5,000 Australians who are 110. The largest segment of the population by far will be aged between 85 and 100. So we have to look at how we handle that society. Now, one of the, there's a few attitudes that we have to change. There are too many oldies, if I can... I'm, I'm an oldie. There are too many oldies who believe that they've worked hard for Australia and now Australia has got to look after them and that is an absolute nonsense. Australia does not owe any of us anything. Up until 1908, no-one in Australia got a pension at all. You worked until you died or your family looked after you and that was it. And we took on a pension not because it was an obligation but because Australia was a responsible society that wanted to make sure that people could grow old uh, without being in poverty. And so a pension was given. It's not an entitlement that we're entitled to, it's a privilege that we get from living in a good nation and there are half the world's population does not have a pension at all. So starting from that situation, Senior Australians need to contribute to the economy in all sorts of ways for it to survive. And one of the things that's going to have to happen is that people like me who don't pay any tax on the superannuation that I draw every month, we're going to have to pay some, simply because if we don't do that, our grandkids are going to pay it, and we've got to decide whether we're going to pay it or our grandkids are going to pay it. Now, there's all sorts of issues that arise out of all that. We're going to have to work longer, not by uh, compulsion, but hopefully by choice. But when the retirement age of 65 was set in 1908, that was the age when Deacon and Fisher, they got together to organise the pension. They used to meet down at the Melbourne Club and decide these things. Just just imagine Julia and Abbott meeting down the club to decide things. (laughs) And they got an actuary at the club. They said, look, we've got to have a pension. What age will we give it to them? There's an actuary in the club and they brought him over and gave him a glass of red wine and said to him, at what age will everybody be dead? This is 1908. And he said, most workers will be dead at 65. And they said, right, that's the age when we'll give them a pension when they're dead. <laughs> now, 100 years, 100 years later, the equivalent medical age is 85. Now, if Joe Hockey gets up at the next budget and says, you're going to w- work till 85, he won't make it to the door alive. <laughs> and so uh, we, we, we've got, but nevertheless, we all need to work more. And we've got to overcome prejudice that employers have against old guys like me that they think we're, we're lost. We're just, they, employers actually think that on your 65th birthday and at precisely midnight, <laughs> your brain clicks, clunks. <laughs> clunk. And you are at that point geriatric from that moment on. And so we're losing enormous productivity in Australia from very wise people. Now, I can't go on for too long or Jan's going to ring a bell on me, but I just want to say this, that it's the job of older Australians to make sure that all younger Australians have got a job. Because if we're going to survive this economic issue, this enormous drain we can't have 30% of young people unemployed in this country that's just plain insanity and so we have to contribute to that the longevity forum that i chair and when they asked me to be chairman of the longevity forum my main problem was my ability to spell it but but the longevity <laughs> forum that i want we want to we have set up a company just recently called wise young a not for profit company which is going to get younger people who are coming out of universities and technical colleges and what have you, all of them with great ideas and great visions, except nobody will employ them and they've got no dough to start up on their own. And we want to find older people who are getting bored at home, male and female, who want to get out into the workforce and form a partnership with a young person with a bright idea. And say, so you come with your bright idea... <laughs> And we'll come with you and give you our, our experience and we'll put a bit of money in and we'll find a few other guys that have got a bit of money and we'll start businesses and those businesses should be about innovation, about all of the innovation that a changing world needs, particularly the innovation that older people need to be able to stay in their homes longer and, and, and all of those issues. But we going to team old and young and we want to have thousands of partnerships across Australia where that happens, and a business gets set up with the younger person having the right to buy the old guy out at some time anyway. (laughs) Uh, But he he might die before he gets paid out. But anyway, (laughs) the issue is that it's our job as seniors to make sure that young Australia gets a go. And one of the things we've got to do is to tell Abbott and Hockey and Shorten and whoever else is hanging around that we can't have a nation of young children with an enormous debt over their heads, like $100,000 for a degree, before they even start, that is absolutely (laughs) done. And so, let's form partnerships everywhere. I intend to form one with a lovely little 16-year-old girl somewhere, (laughs) who's very bright, by the way. I'm getting her because she's very bright. The point of the matter is <laughs> the way of the future is not for the generations of Australia to fight one another over who's paying what. The way of the future is for the generations to walk together and let's make it happen.
0: Great. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I think by popular claim, that's been voted the best idea <laughs> at Ideas for Australia so far. Yes. Great. Um, so, Andrew, let's talk about the mechanics of Everald's idea. So, we're going to incentivise um, young people to go into business with old people who might die quickly or earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, great, so, you know, there's no issues then about where the money goes. How, what, what are the structural, apart from that, brilliant structure which I could see how the pension, the super could all be restructured around that. What are the structural barriers but also incentives that actually we should be putting in place if we believe in an intergenerational transfer of knowledge, resources, wealth in this country?
1: Well, I, I'm, I'm an optimist about this issue. I think that older workers um, will need to stay in the workforce for longer. Um, uh, and that the economy will change in a way that absorbs them. Let me give you one example. I was in, a, um, I was in a, uh, an Uber, you know one of these Uber cars, like the, you know, the taxi service, and I was being picked up, it was 8 o'clock in the morning on the way to the airport, and the gentleman in the, uh, in the Uber was, he told me he was 74, and until he started with Uber, he had been retired for 10 years. And he said, uh, my whole life I've always woken up early in the morning around 4.30, 5 o'clock, and he goes, now, about 5 o'clock, I jump in the car, drive people around for three, three and a half hours, go home and cook my wife breakfast. (laughs) And that's an example of an economic change, a technological change that is bringing an older worker, in fact, thousands of older workers, Back into the workforce, and, and I'm optimistic that the economy will change, technologies will change, that will enable this to happen. As long as we have the policy supports, the goodwill, the passion, to to connect the opportunity uh, with the workers that are keen to seize those opportunities. Mm. So I, I think there's a I think there's a solution out there, and we're in, in reach of it.
0: Hmm. Hol, are you worried about trade-offs? So if these older people take a whole heap of jobs that, for instance, could be entry-level jobs for younger people, like becoming an Uber driver. Um, what, what are the trade-offs for young people in a high unemployment and underemployment environment, do you think?
2: Well, I think that, that's a really good point. And, and one of the things I think is really interesting about the conversation we've been having around jobs, and Catherine Livingston called it out at the BCA level this week, is we, we focus on the participation conversation. And it's an important one, and it was one of the key things that was called out in the intergenerational report. But that implies that the jobs are there to participate in. And I think there's kind of a precursor of how hold on, come back here, how do we start to grow the size of the pie so that it can very much absorb people who are coming back into the workforce as an older generation, but can also, um, Ensure that we've got young people entering the workforce and able to find jobs. I was in conversation with a group of young people in Melbourne, um, held a dinner the other week to, to talk about ideas around how we tackle youth unemployment in Victoria. And one of them was six months out of university. In that six month period, she has applied for more than 600 jobs. 600 jobs to no avail, has had nothing other than short term contract opportunities come up. But When I start talking to her and I'm hearing about, you know, what it is that she's up to, an unbelievably talented artist, produces these gorgeous gift cards and all these creative design work and you're going, how can we start to think differently um, about that education and skilling agenda? So we're not having this conversation around trade-offs and getting into the generational mudslinging but going, all right, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we could repurpose the way people could use Hextet? So that as opposed to just having to use it to be able to access, uh, you know, a tertiary opportunity, which we know increasingly there's a skills mismatch and a disconnect with, what if we could set up government-backed and, and corporate-funded, so I think there's a fusion between the sectors here, these incubators where young people could access HEC, HECS debt through a structured program where they developed a business idea in support with uh, all this learning and development environment in, within a university setting, and then they were able to use a proportion of funding to be able to start a business. So we're actually creating this entrepreneurial community and skilling that then directly leads to the creation of job opportunities. You know, I know a lot of young people who are employing older people in their businesses. So how do we start to create this this culture of innovation Um, as opposed to having the complacent policy settings of, oh, it's cyclical or, oh, we'll find a way or the economy will naturally move in flux to absorb the jobs. The state of youth unemployment right now is too dire. For our, com- uh, for our policy settings to remain on, uh, complacent about it.
0: Right. Okay. So I'm very aware that this is a big discussion and I want to get quickly to questions from the room. Um, this is the second last session of the day. So this is, I know there's a lot of questions still left um, on the floor of the room f- before we end this fantastic day that we've had. So the mics, as we said, are one and two here. And we're going to open up for um, discussion. If you've got questions or commentary or there's something that you are very keen to talk about in this topic, here is your chance. Oh, there's people sprinting to those microphones. (laughs) Or they're leaving. I'm not sure which one. Um, So over here, number one and number two up and we've got someone. And just tell us uh, your name, just so that we keep it all friendly. Uh,
4: Hi, I'm Richard um, Halliwell. Hi, Richard. Something I might have missed, the intergenerational report was about the youth and the future and I wonder what it s- said to say about c- climate change. Andrew, do you
0: want to take a pick of
4: that? Uh, yeah,
1: it's got a, it's got a very... It, it does talk about climate change. Um, uh, it's a very brief section and it talks about the government's direct action policy to deal with climate change and the 5% emissions reduction target that the, um, the government has in place... Um, I would not describe it as a fulsome discussion of climate change. <laughs> uh, Look
0: how diplomatic he is. Isn't he, right? <laughs> well, also, he didn't write it, so just so everyone knows. <laughs> yeah. He's Can talking I make a about point,
3: it. Jan? <laughs> there are older people all over Australia who want to get involved in the environment. The debate about climate change and global warming confuses them. But our generation believed that it was us over seven that started the development generation that did all sorts of things that weren't good for for climate. So there are many older people who want to do something about cleaning up the environment while they're still on this planet so they can restore it to the way it was when they got here. So provided we don't get involved in great political debates and left and right wing brawls about it all, provided you talk about let's clean up the environment, let's make Australia a better place, there are millions of seniors out there who want to get involved in just doing that. As long as we keep it as a good, conservative, decent thing that people ought to do and keep it out of politics, you'll have an environmental revolution.
2: And that could be a huge area of partnership with the younger generation. Because yeah, I'd
3: say the exact same thing about <laughs> young right. people coming through. Yeah.
5: Thank you. Hi. Thank you all so much. My name's Georgie. Um, Andrew, you touched on this example of Uber actually creating a lot of jobs and technology helping in that instance. My concern is that as the world becomes more and more dependent on technology, obviously that eats into the jobs that we have. And it means that the jobs of the future are actually jobs we can't imagine yet because the world is changing so fast and we actually don't know what our children are going to be doing. Um, So I'm really interested to hear how the reports or how you guys think about that and also what our education department is doing to think about that because we need to be able to compete globally um, in a world that is going to be dependent on technology.
1: Mm. Mm. PwC released a report on Friday Mm. uh, and in that report they said that 50%, half of the jobs that exist today will be replaced by automation in the coming decades, 50%. And from an an economist's point of view, there is nothing in economics that tells me that, The march of automation means that naturally jobs will, but you know, there's one view that naturally jobs will will, uh, emerge and as machines take over more things, more jobs will will pop up to replace that. There is nothing in economics that tells me that that is true. You know, if that were true, there'd be a whole lot of horses around at the moment who had found other jobs since they were replaced by motor cars. (laughs) We have an enormous challenge Mm -hmm. ahead of us to find new jobs of the future uh, to replace uh, the jobs that will be replaced by automation and indeed uh, offshoring to to other countries uh, over the next few decades. And I think that's where Australia has got a massive wake-up call to ask ourselves, and Holly made a lot of good points in this area, do we have the education system, do we have the innovation culture? Are we preparing our young people in order to make a huge leap into the jobs of the future and I think there are a lot of indicators uh, that suggest that Australia's education system maybe isn't as Mm forward-looking towards those new jobs as you might hope.
2: And even on the data that we're seeing, just to jump in on the back of Andrew's point, if we look at, um, I guess, the, the traditional skills that we've gone, okay, well, we need to focus on STEM. And there's been a lot of discussion around the importance of STEM learning and it is very important. It's by no means the only thing we should be talking about as part of that skills and training and education discussion. But it is really important and we've kind of moved from going, okay, we've had a resource-based economy for that period of 24 years worth of uninterrupted economic growth. Anyone who's tracking the oil price at the moment knows that that's not working well for us at present. And so this conversation's gone, okay, well, we need to be a smart country. We need to be the nation of ingenuity. And already what we're seeing in the STEM tables and results is that we're slipping relative to our, even just our neighbours, let alone globally in the tables. So it's not even a conversation so much around what else do we need to be pulling in, it's how do we make sure what we're already teaching is up to the standard necessary to be able to be a human capital oriented economy where our our people are at their absolute best and brightest. And then what else do we need to add into that mix to ensure that 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 can create um, the skills necessary to, um, to have a prosperous economy and to have young people walking into jobs or creating their own economic opportunities.
3: yeah, can I ask Andrew a question? Uh, certainly. Uh, I used to pay taxes to keep him going in Kevin's office. Yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> last, last time everyone asked me a question, he got the largest increase in the pension in Australia's history out of the government. <laughs>
5: <laughs> you should be up?
0: careful right <laughs> no now, It
1: cost us <laughs> <is> $35 billion, <laughs> hopefully this one will be cheaper.
3: Andrew, it seems to me the debate, unfortunately, at the moment in Australia is centred around debt and taxes and cutting of welfare, and it seems to me that's the wrong debate. Well, I'm sure there are efficiencies that can be got. The whole debate should be around productivity. Yeah. A nation that's got 100% of its people producing doesn't have any economic problems, yet we don't have any debate about productivity. Now, it's not much good. Uh, we, we can revive our manufacturing industry a bit. But we're more likely to earn money by innovation. With all the young brains we've got in Australia, have innovations we can sell to the world. Even in the field of ageing, the ageing services in Australia in nursing homes are more sophisticated than anywhere else in the world. We could export that expertise to the world. No encouragement to do that. So what I'm wanting to say is why don't we stop worrying about debts and taxes and welfare and slashing and concentrate 1,000 per cent on productivity? Couldn't agree with you more, yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I think, I think um, <laughs> and the, it's the,
1: it's what kind of economy we want to leave our kids yeah. is the most important question here. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of great work being done about how we lift the innovation of the Australian economy and FIA does a, um, does a lot of great work in this area. Uh, there's a lot of work uh, happening on how we make sure that we transition away following the mining boom into a services-based productivity economy, yeah. you know, how do, we, how do we take the enormous success that we had in providing uh, the new Asian middle class with the uh, iron ore and steel to build the infrastructure that has leapfrogged them into the middle class. And how do we now provide that middle class with the tourism, business services, educational opportunities that, that they now want now that they've made that leap? And that's, that's the question for Australia. How do we grasp that new opportunity? Mm. And it comes mm. down to education and it comes down to innovation. Uh, and that's a part of it but it's a small part of it.
3: Yeah.
0: So my co-moderator and I would like to take another question. <laughs> <laughs>
5: <laughs> Thank you so much for opening up this discussion. Um, I am uh, a former startup entrepreneur. I had a really successful startup. And all I just want to say is there's a lot of talk about we need ideas and we need innovation. But at the heart of innovation, you can only have a successful business if you're meeting a need and you're solving a problem. So I think, you know, a focus, a bipartisan focus on what are those industries that a growing middle class needs. And as an experienced middle class, we know it's wine, we know it's tourism, we know it's music, we know it's um, water sanitation, we know it's solar energy, all of these things, they're all knowns. Um, And with the launch of the new Tesla battery on Friday, I mean... We have the engineers who... We, we've imported engineers for our mining boom. Can we just come together and actually support key industries like health, like energy, like tourism and music and art um, that are going to meet these needs and just sort of get on with it? Um, because we all know what it is. Um, but can we get some structures in place that allow us to not be um, held, get held back by regulation and actually just mm. move forward and create these industries? Mm.
0: Great. Thank okay. you. Holly... Um you know, there's a lot of, well, there was, a co- there was actually a, a commentary this morning that um, we don't have enough ideas and, and here's a, uh, um, a member of the audience saying actually we do. So what, where's, what's wrong with the environment then? Why aren't those ideas coming to fruition or what's going on in Australia that we're missing the opportunities to grow these great ideas? It's a great question and I think there's a couple of different ways you can take the answer and I guess
2: I'll frame this around what it was that I heard a lot from young entrepreneurs in the conversations that we had with them last year. Um, The first bit was that they could have the great idea but then there was the the understanding of the how, which is really where that enterprising skill set comes in and the importance of making sure that that sort of education and training, it would be great if we could see it in schools full stop, but certainly that it's more accessible. Where is it that I can go and learn how to take this great idea I've got that I can see an opportunity for or when I'm discussing it with people, they're saying, yep, that would make a great contribution. How do I get that off the ground? The second thing we know a lot around is that there's impediments to getting the resources necessary, and this is particularly from a youth point of view. So we know that we've got a very enterprising generation. The world economic um, barometer around entrepreneurship talks a lot about under 30s being the most entrepreneurially active. So great opportunity there if we could find alternative ways of opening up access to capital resources. That's starting to increase. We're seeing a growth in sort of uh, alternative financing, crowdfunding, uh, the venture capital industry is gradually growing, but more opportunities for that kind of cross-pollination I think is really important. And the other one that I think is really interesting, it goes to um, our questioner's point. I don't think we, she shared her name, but um, your question really highlighted the need for that sharing of ideas and, and the awareness of where the need exists. And I think that's a great point. I, one of the things I love about Everell's idea of bringing young and old people together is that experience and different perspective, helping to paint the picture of where the opportunities lie and then to be able to problem solve for where it is or how it is they can be addressed. I mean, Liz Broderick's done an amazing job with her Male Champions of Change initiative in the gender equality space. What about creating an intergenerational Champions of Change? Initiative where you bring together, you know, senior leaders from across business and public policy and, and we get them in a room with aspiring young leaders that are coming through and entrepreneurs and we have that cross-pollination and that shared problem solving and we catalyse ideas so they can start coming to life. And I think things like that would do enormous good if they were injected into our public policy conversation.
0: Mm. Andrew, what's the role of government here? I mean, there was a, there was a really interesting little, um, discovery that, that we made at FIA where we discovered that the knee NICE scheme, and the knee NICE scheme is the scheme that helps people set up as entrepreneurs, so it's through TAFE and you get mentoring and support, and about twelve thousand dollars to actually start up your business, no matter what age you are. Interesting thing about the NIS NICE scheme, obviously it's government supported, is that you have to be unemployed for twelve months. So when you're at your lowest ebb after having been unemployed for twelve months and feeling quite depressed and down about it, then you can join a scheme to become an entrepreneur. And it seemed to me to be a crazy, crazy little bit of government policy that you could yeah. flick the switch on in government mm. and actually create a very different environment that was much more on the front foot and more positive. Mm. So what, what is government's role in this space of entrepreneurship and enterprise and, and fueling this in Australia?
1: Uh, the government's role is to connect the opportunity with the people s- who are seeking to seize that opportunity. And what's in the middle there, it's providing them with the skills to take advantage of all the opportunities that were mentioned by the questioner it's providing them with the uh, support to deliver entrepreneurial solutions to the challenges that we face Uh, and I think, you know, I think all the points that Holly's made are super relevant here. You know, Australia's uh, STEM, that's science, technology, Technology. engineering engineering and maths, maths. Uh, our scores and our participation in those subjects at school and university are disastrously bad. Uh, And they are bad relative to history and they are very bad relative to our peers around the world. Uh, And that has to change if we are going to equip our future workforce with the skills that they need to take advantage of new opportunities and find the jobs of the future. So, for me, government is an enabler, and there is this great sense from the 80s, I think, that government has to play this really passive role in the economy where they can't pick winners, they can't try and direct the economy. Uh, And I think that, that emerged for some good reasons. There was a lot of sense that, you know, of government failure in in different areas where they tried to get too involved in the economy. But that doesn't mean that government doesn't have a really important role enabling people and businesses to go out and take advantage of opportunities. And I think that's where Australia might be missing a trick. Are we providing the education, are we providing the support for business so that they can go out and seize those opportunities? And I think the evidence might be that, 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 that we're not as much as we could.
0: We've got a very patient questioner
1: here. Good My name's Lockie. Um, my question probably is to the whole panel, but particularly overall. We often in these debates you hear about people just talk about oh, pension reform. Yeah, we just need to fix the pension age. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is. Pension reform is, if you were to make a serious, serious go at sort of reducing the cost of the pension moving forward, it's as close to a political death sentence as you can get (laughs) in Australia at the moment. Mm. What have governments of the past, both Liberal and Labor, been doing wrong that it's been so politically toxic for them to try and do something about the pension? If anything, probably the pension has been been becoming more generous recently rather than less. I know the age has been increasing. What have they been doing wrong in the past and what could they, do, what could governments of the future do better to actually convince? And it's not, I'm not just talking about people who are on the pension. It's, it's toxic with people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. It's a very, very tough thing to do. What have they been doing wrong and what could they do better in the future?
3: Well, I think part of the problem is that governments think short term. They only think in terms of the Next election, I mean, the Andrew's government accepted, of course, but, you know, <laughs> they, they only think of the next election and what will get them votes to the next election. One of the problems with the pension is that ever since it started in 1908, it's been a political football. The government's played with it at every election and, and, and figures were plucked out of the air as to what ought to be the pension instead of someone sitting down and saying, what does it cost a pension to live? Now, right now in Australia, no one has ever sat down and said, what is the right retirement income for a person to live a humble but, but decent life? And I believe we ought to start again by calculating the pension, forgetting about all other pensions in the past, sit down and calculate what is the right pension for people in this day and in this age with all the costs and challenges that they are. Then take it out of Parliament, have it set at that, take it out of Parliament, have an independent authority that sets the pension like there is an independent authority to set parliamentary salaries which they don 't contest, well they can have one with pensions which they don 't uh, contest and if we if we start again and keep it out of politics, we will have a realistic pension going into the future great right.
1: I, I, I the, what I'd say, lucky, I think one thing that's that is potentially one of the solutions here is um, this concept of um, of slow urgency and what I mean by that is people looking for solutions to big problems but to deal with them really slowly. So, for example, we know we need to deal with negative gearing at some point <laughs> but we don't need to abolish it overnight. You can grandfather the whole existing system and then just change it little by little, you know, 1% a year and then you've solved the problem. You've solved the problem maybe in 20 years. You don't need to, we, don't, we know we need to deal with, um, with the taxation of, of superannuation but you don't need to do it in a big bang in one budget. You can change that little by little over time. I think there are lots of these big problems that actually have quite long horizons and, and it's our failure to solve them because the, the solution in one big bang is too politically toxic, as you say, and too big for anyone to swallow and too much of an adjustment. But you don't need to solve them straight away. If you, try, if, you, if you put in place solutions that started now but burned over 10 or 15 years, You'd, you'd wake up in ten or fifteen years. Comes around pretty fast. You'd wake up with some of the big challenges of our nation really starting to be solved, little by little, in a way that doesn't have the big bang and doesn't get the government turfed out of office the next election. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <clears throat>
0: um. Can I ask a supplementary question to that though because you've mentioned several times yourself and your education and there is a very now widespread view in this country that we are in a very old clunky education system that isn't actually going to serve us in the way that you're directing us into the future about growth and STEM. What's your answer to that? Because it seems like a slow burn is not going to fix that anymore.
1: I mean, I think, I think this, is a, this is a classic example. You know, you, you only change the workforce over a 15, 20, 30-year time horizon, so you need to put in place changes now. This, this, is, why the, this is why you've got a slow urgency. The urgency part of the, of the slow urgency is you've got to do it now in order for it to have an impact in 20 or 30 years' mm-hmm. time. Uh, And and, and that's a solution which we can't change tomorrow. We we cannot dramatically change the skill base of our workforce in any three-year period. Mm. So for a government, if you've only got a three-year horizon, it's not a soluble problem. Mm. But if you take a 15 or 20 or 30-year horizon and start now with small ways, you can make a difference that will be enormously important in that time period.
0: So how are you going to convince governments that have a three-year horizon to...
1: I, I think that's, that, that's up to every citizen, you know. We, it's, this is about national priorities. Governments reflect national priorities. And and I think Australia, because, you know, the, the, the first number I had on that chart was Australia's growth has been extraordinary. And that has been such a blessing for this nation, but also such a curse, mm-hmm. because that prosperity has provided us with a sense of complacency around reform and change and, That complacency, which has been allowed to continue for the last couple of decades, I think will naturally change as we head into a much tougher period. And these solutions that have been on the table for a while, um, but haven't been picked up because there's been no urgency, no burning bridge, Uh, once, you know, if we work now to have those solutions in place, I think that burning bridge is about to arrive.
2: I was just gonna add in to Andrew's comment there. I think one of the extra challenges with education is it's not just about kind of getting our, our teaching up and, and putting a new pin in that point and going, cool, we we've, we've done educational reform. One of the challenges that we can see from the pace of change that our education system is having to respond to is that's not slowing down anytime soon. And so you've actually got the issue as well of how do you how do you fundamentally redo the architecture of our education system because we actually need it to be able to be responsive and to move and change on an ongoing basis. And one of the challenges we've had right now is we've been flat-footed and, and as Andrew said, that's compounded over time and that, that curse, in some ways, of the uninterrupted economic boom. But it's also thinking about how do we not just meet the skill and STEM needs for now, say, but how do we make sure that as new challenges, new changes, new demands get placed on our economy, our people, that's able to be implemented with far greater ease than the structural issues we have right now of trying to drive any form of change in our education system.
3: Dan, can I make a point about oldies getting educated? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> there are lots of people now who reach 65 who don't want to stay in the profession they're in. Some of them got in that profession because that was all that was available when they started working and they'd like to do something totally new once they get to 65, start again, just like somebody leaving school. And there's a great challenge to, to let them study and get the skills that they want. I met a lawyer the other day, sick of the law, age 65. He went off to a TAFE college and he learned to be an olive farmer. And now he's growing olives and now he's working out 150 different recipes as to how you can use olives and whatever. This has given him a brand new you know, brand new lease of of life. And so there's an enormous opportunity for universities and to get a lot of money out of that. There's also amongst older people my age who want to get a university degree that they never ever got. Back in my generation, only a tiny handful of people, I I went to school in 1930s, only a tiny handful went to university. Women were told to stay at home where they're supposed to be. You know, you got that where they're supposed to be. They were told You're to stay home. Awfully
2: close. Be careful.
3: Yeah. And they never <laughs> ever, so ever had a chance clothes. to play the music that was in them. They were stuck in this terrible situation. Now, in their older age, they'd like to get a university degree, not to for a job, but just so they can get a university degree. There's one lady in Brisbane the other day, aged 90, got herself a university degree and she walked off with the certificate and she said, all I want to happen is that they put this certificate in my coffin to show that I did it, you know, in that way. And and they're prepared to pay their way in universities to get degrees not related, whether it's in ancient history or whatever, not related or universities could make a packet of dough which they use to cut down the fees for young people trying to get through there. I think we've got to get our universities to get a bit smart, haven't we?
0: That's great. I think um, that's a real market, given the international students uh, decreasing
4: rapidly <laughs> in our universities. We should go and talk
0: to the vice chancellors about the older. We've got another questioner here. Hi. Yes, it's all you. Me.
4: Hi. Yes. My name's James uh, and I've asked two questions today, so I apologise, but no-one else was up to ask a question. Um, I want to be an optimist about this, but I don't feel optimistic. Uh, I'm 25, uh, and you're right, there are a lot of older people around the 60s age who are in senior management, perhaps running a business, who might maybe only have one degree. They look at me, I have a degree, and I'm doing a Master of Business, and they think that I'm not employable. Uh, And uh, we also talk about productivity, which has been running at 2%, and we want to keep it running at 2%. Productivity does it not mean uh, that we're doing more with less, or the same with less? That's a question. Mm -hmm. Is productivity the be all and end all? And are there always going to be jobs for people like me if I'm being automated? Mm.
0: Mm. Who wants to take that one? Andrew? You're the government here today apparently. (laughs) Default. I don't know how that happened but take it on the chin. (laughs) Um,
1: You know, Paul Paul Krugman who's a Nobel laureate in, in economics, he says, Productivity isn't everything, but in the long run it's almost everything. Mm. And that's because productivity is a, you know, is a, is a, is a funny technical word that many people use to, to, to mean many things. But its real definition is how much as a nation do we produce with the resources that we have. And if you want our incomes to continue to rising, to rise, if you want Australia to continue to be one of the best places in the world to live, and if we don't improve our productivity, then we'll fall behind. You know, that's, why, that's why the Eastern Europeans uh, fell behind. Their productivity was slower than the West. So they were, they were 25 years behind in terms of national income by the time their system collapsed. Productivity is the engine that means that our standards of living continue to rise. And that's why, as Everald said, it is what we should be focusing on. And our productivity in Australia has been falling since the 90s. And there are lots of reasons why uh, it's been falling, and it's a, it's a complicated area. But one of the key reasons is this point of complacency. The reforms that went through in the 80s and the early 90s drove productivity uh, up to 2.2% uh, in the late 90s, which was the peak of our productivity growth. Uh, and that has been part of the of the huge growth in national incomes that that we've experienced. And now the IGR is forecasting that our productivity growth is going to fall down to 1.5 per cent. And that sounds like a small difference, but over a long period of time, that's a huge difference. That's the difference between Australia being one of the best places in the world to live and Australia being at the bottom of the OECD table, muddling around with the
3: but there, there's a social cost involved in this. I can relate to someone who's 25, a couple of universities, can't get a job. It's just like a, an older person who gets to 65 and feels they've got another 15 years they could contribute to the world and they're told to get lost. There, there, there's a great demoralisation in that. A, a young person coming out of university that doesn't get a job very soon,er inevitably, no matter how good a person, are, a dull mentality, creeps into the system and they feel they're not a worthy person. Mental illness kept in. The same with older people in that way. I think what we've got to look at is with every economic issue that government's going to put forward in the budget next week, there is a social cost involved in that. There's a human cost involved in that that very rarely gets mentioned in the debate and we need to do something about it. Mm
0: James, have you come back for another crack?
4: Yeah. I've just come
3: back to say I agree with you
4: um, but I think you missed the point that productivity would be great if everything was automated but the social cost being, do I have a job?
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean there's not, th- I, think, I think maybe the point that we, um, that's causing the, um, the confusion is, you know, productivity is zero when someone's unemployed. So I'm not suggesting for a minute that unemployment is a positive thing. We need to find work for people, but it's incredibly important that that work be high productivity work. Uh, Because if we don't have high productivity work, then those jobs do get automated. They do get offshore to other parts of the world where wages are lower and our national income stagnates. So you're absolutely right. It is imperative that we find jobs for people but it's also imperative that they not just be any job but they be high productivity jobs that are sustainable and can continue to lift our incomes in Australia and keep us a great country and a great place to live.
0: Unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm so sorry. Um, It's been a fantastic discussion. Thank you very much and please join me in thanking Everald Compton, Holly Ransom and Andrew Charlton. Thank you.